0: Welcome back to the show, everyone. I'm your host, Aaron Lowe. And if this is your first episode and you're wondering what this whole thing is all about, well, I'll tell you. Every week, I find my head surgically attached to the body of a different friend and cinephile. Together, we are given a note containing a theme, sometimes specific and sometimes vague. Our job is then to pick a pair of movies that fit that theme and then watch and discuss. This is the Incredible Two Headed Podcast. Hey everybody, welcome back. Welcome back to the incredible Two-Headed Podcast and our ongoing Summer in the Shadows. That's right, the world is on fire. It is burning up outside, and in some cases, as in here, it is burning up inside. And we're taking refuge in the shadows where we can. We're watching a bunch of film noir to try and cool ourselves out. And this week, in our continuing adventure, we have a returning guest, Jay Carlos Menjivar of Dial F for Film. Hey, Carlos, how's it going? Oh, it's going
1: well. I'm enjoying uh, this uh, noir summer uh, that you sort of uh, imposed on me. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Uh, But uh, I found myself that I think sometimes things align. And coincidentally, the Criterion Channel has a neo-noir 26 film uh, series uh, that they're doing on the Criterion Channel. And I started diving into that. Um, at the same time, watching the two film noir that we're going to talk about today. So I am steeped in noir right now, and I'm super excited to to talk film noir.
0: Yeah, yeah, I'm getting there myself. <laughs> I got the Criterion Channel this weekend. Just I, I can't afford another streaming service. If I could, Criterion's the one I would do. <laughs> yeah, but, uh, I, I'm I think I'm the only one that would be using it regularly, and we we're we're paying for the ones that the kids watch stuff on. <laughs> I, I did see that they had a bunch of noir uh, little categories. They had the neo noir. They have Japanese noir, which I'm really excited yeah. To. I've seen a, f- a few of those, but that that's exciting because I was I was thinking about uh, actually covering some of those films, and then I, I look on there and see that they're they're grouped together with a bunch of other things. I was like, oh, this is great. So I'm going to be diving into that over the next month as much as I can now that I'm I'm back to work. Yeah, of course. I, I I feel yeah. I feel like this past week was the first week where I really
1: started to watch movies again, uh, outside of the Kubrick movies I've been watching for my show. Uh, I wasn't really watching much. I was just so tired, and now I'm finally getting into the groove. And I found a genre or a style that I really am excited to get into. And a lot of them have been seventy movies. And the more I the more seventy movies I watch, the more I realize. I think the 70s is one of my favorite uh, film periods uh, around. And that, I think that's why I like the neo-noir thing a lot, because most of them are 70s uh, neo-noir.
0: Yeah. The, well, I mean, the 70s is kind of like... It, it was such a, a a fertile period for... Yeah. Kind of... Uh, well, I don't know how I was going to describe it. But anyway, it's just like the the grain of film in the seventies and, and just, you know, you get these movies that, that are, are not necessarily plot driven, but they have really like interesting slices of life. And um, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. I was watching like, I, I got, uh, well, speaking of seventies neo-noir on the last Warner archive sale, I picked up night moves with Gene Hackman <laughs> and that's a really good movie. And like, right after I bought it, I saw somebody on Twitter saying, uh, it turns out about that movie, saying was it really a good movie or was it just filmed on the in the seventies and shot on film? And <laughs> it's like, oh yeah, well, I think it's a good movie, but I get that you it's it's so easy to just kind of like look at the texture of a seventies movie and kind of like uh, be entranced
1: in a way. Well, it's funny you mentioned that because that was that was one of the ones I watch. I'm trying to watch uh, the movies I haven't seen first, and Night Moves is one of them. Uh, and I I also really liked it. Uh, I I did feel like maybe towards the end of the movie, I was like wondering, like, there's no real plot to this. It's just yeah. this guy just kind of going through L.A. and the surrounding areas, uh, you know, kind of looking for something, but really not. It's just it's such a bizarre movie. And there's there's scenes that are so shocking that come out of nowhere that really had an effect and. I just thought this was a cool movie, and I started looking up uh, Arthur Penn because outside of this, I've only seen I think Bonnie and Clyde, and I really dug Night Moves.
0: I love Gene Hackman, and I'll pretty much watch. Yes, I'll yes. pretty much watch anything Gene Hackman is
1: in. Yeah, he's so good as playing like, like the lonely uh, kind of broken man, but then he does like like a role like in French Connection where he's just like an asshole and just tough. It's just it's so weird, like. The dichotomy between those two roles that he plays—he's he, such a good actor.
0: He, yeah, he's great. And I just watched this, uh, this couple of months ago. Um, I watched Scarecrow with him and uh, Al Pacino. Which I ah, seen. yeah, yeah. And that—that's that's kind of a movie that's like oh, this has got no plot. <laughs> There's like nothing <laughs> really going on. We're just kind of following. This. And after a while, I, I was like really in, enjoying it. I was really into it and after a while i did start to like think about that that what that random person on twitter had said about how it was is it really good or is it just made in the 70s and shot on film and i was like oh, maybe maybe like. <laughs> in the end i don't think i was like really in love with that movie but i i still yeah. enjoyed watching it al pacino and gene hackman were really great together and there were some very powerful moments but overall it was just like this is in a way the cliche of 70s movies that that are kind of like trying to be profound in how uh how dull they are like like in, in just you know the slice of life mundane things right. happen and then things get kind of like dirty quote unquote for a little while and gritty and
1: yeah, I think that's like the trend because uh, "Long Goodbye" is a movie that I really love, um, and that's a movie I think by another director it would be a really boring movie, but because it's Altman, it's visually interesting, and 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 the cast of characters and the actors are all great, but it, it, it like teeters on the line between art and something that's just completely uninteresting and just kind of self-involved in in a in a way that's not. Uh, enticing or inoculating to, to the audience, and uh, Long Goodbye is a, like a another perfect example of those type of movies of just kind of style and mood over everything over story.
0: <laughs> yeah, that that's Long Goodbye is a movie I really need to see again because I I only saw it the once years ago, and my memory. do you of feel it, about it? My memory of it was that I was not as hot on that film as, as most other people. Uh, and I like Altman, but I, I have to admit, I haven't seen a lot of his seventies, even his his like uh, the big movies that made his name and people are remembering for him before. Yeah. Uh, I haven't seen a lot of those, but what I've seen of Altman, I really like, I just felt that one like, that was, it's the problem we were talking about with the movies we were just talking about. It, it, it's a, it felt a little formless and oh yeah and like like that kind of formlessness put over a genre that has kind of like very specific beats and and requirements that you expect as an audience member um maybe i just wasn't in the mood for it because i i just i was watching when i watched it i was was like really diving deep into film noir and i was loving all of the the stuff that comes with film noir and so when I saw that I was just like well this is I I can tell this is kind of supposed to be film noir but it doesn't have the things that I love about film noir in it and but but I really do want to watch it again because I know I'm kind of a philistine for thinking that and then I'll probably (laughs) watch it again and I'll probably realize like no this is genius and I was just not in the right mood for the movie yeah, this kind of leads
1: into our first movie because Altman directed thieves like us, which well, I, I haven't seen, but, uh, which is, uh, adapted from this, the book, uh, thieves like us, which is, uh, what the first, well, I don't know if it's the first movie we're going to talk about, but one of the movies we're going to talk about.
0: Yeah. I think, I think we'll make that the first movie. So, yeah. I mean, you, you let the cat out of the bag. Um, <laughs> the theme this week, you actually picked both movies. Um, I'm not going to say yes. I can't. I, I can both <laughs> movies. He wanted to do some Nicholas Ray. I had seen one of these movies and loved it and kind of jumped because I was like, yes, I wanted to talk to somebody about this movie. And the other one, the one we're going to talk first, uh, They Live By Night, I had not seen before. And so. Um, it's exciting. Yeah. All right. Well, let's, let's take a quick break. We'll come right back and we'll talk about They Live By Night. How come you killed a man? Uh, some of the fellows in a carnival I was traveling with said they knew how to make some money. Get a safe all picked out. Just sort of went along to see how it was done. You in a carnival? Just roused about them. I should have been smart and run like the other kids. You know, lawyers cost money. As soon as I get enough, I got a lawyer in Tulsa to see. I'm gonna get myself squared around. I hope you're right. Yeah, you bet I'm right. You know what I'm going to do? I'd like to go to New Orleans. Mexico, maybe. The way Chickamau talks about that in Mexico, that must be some country. Uh, before I'm through, I'm going to do a lot of looking around. You think you're quite a man, don't you? Ah? Uh-huh. Fine way to get squared around, teaming with them. Stealing money and robbing banks. You're getting so deep trying to get squared, They'll have enough on you to keep you in prison for two lifetimes.
1: I'll call my sister.
0: I'll leave the address with her. If what that newspaper clipping says is true, you can go back and tell them about it in prison. They don't keep people there who don't belong there.
1: They never believe me.
0: Who said that? d Dub? They know. They live by night. The directorial debut of Nicholas Ray is a 1948 film noir, commonly referred to as the prototype of the couple on the run subgenre of films, though Persons in Hiding nine years earlier probably holds that honor. Farley Granger is Arthur Bowie Bowers, a young man escaped from the prison he's been in since he was 16. He dreams of having his conviction overturned and naively trusts two other cons who tell him that once he helps them rob a bank, he'll have the money to afford a lawyer. Kathy O'Donnell plays Catherine Kichi Mobley, a young woman he meets while hiding out. The two fall in love and try to live alone and in peace, while the criminal life turns out to be harder to shake than Bowie thought. So this is the movie I hadn't seen before. Uh, it, it had been on my list. It, it, it was just kind of like hard for me to track down. This time I ended up having to watch it on Daily Motion, which was a pretty good copy. I mean, it were, certainly wasn't, you know, remastered or anything, but. Uh, it, it's certainly watchable. So maybe I'll put a link so people can watch it there. And I actually really liked this. I thought it was a lot of, uh, I don't know if fun is the right word, but it was very intriguing. Uh, like I I was yeah. sucked in in the beginning because this movie does not hold your hand. It takes you a few scenes to even figure out what the relationships between the characters are or what the situation is that you, you kind of get the idea that they're on the run. These three convicts and this like farmer, they've kind of like, kidnapped for a moment just to steal his car and, but we don't we we cut into the middle of like or the middle of this and we don't understand who's with who and who's just being dragged along for a little while um and the movie yeah. kind of keeps that up all the way throughout i was kind of not not kept guessing but i had to kind of like piece things together in my head in in a way that i really enjoyed but um How about you? You've seen this movie before, I'm I'm assuming.
1: Yeah, uh, I saw it once before a very long time ago. Uh, It was one of these movies that I stayed up late to watch on TCM. I I didn't know anything about this movie. It just sounded kind of interesting, and I just started watching from the beginning. It was just starting. uh, So it was a, a, a neat discovery. And also, I didn't really know Nicholas Ray then, I think, outside rebel without i don't even think i knew who directed rebel without a cause like i it was just not not a name that is like a household name like other directors and then slowly i started to discover his movies and and, it kind of starts here i i remember really uh liking this movie when i first saw it uh i still think it's a great movie i it didn't have quite the effect it did the first time i watched it i i kind of found my it it took longer to get into the movie itself and it just it felt different from what I remembered. but I I still really like it there are a lot of uh really cool things in this movie that I like and 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 since you're doing we're doing like a noir discussion I like to get into the uh discussion of what actually like how hard it is to define what a noir is because it could there's so many things that it could be and I didn't I never thought of this movie as a noir and then it and then you watch it and it's like oh I, I think I see I think I see where it's just not your typical noir style it's a little bit different there are elements of it in there but it's 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 so it's so different from it it almost doesn't feel like it and, and then it like kind of splinters off into its own subgenre of movies that would uh become popular popular much later but yeah it's it's a good movie that i it was nice to rewatch again after so many years
0: yeah i know what you're saying about defining film noir because you've got this movie and then you've got bonnie and clyde a, a few years later or, and yeah no a few years later we're talking like like Two decades. Yeah, i'm sorry i don't know what else. <laughs> uh, so you've got this movie and you've got bonnie and clyde and they're incredibly similar and in fact Gun Crazy, a movie we discussed last week week with Rick, is similar in that it's a couple on the run. And Bonnie and Clyde takes a lot from both of these films, like is is very similar to both of these films. And yet I would not consider that a film noir. It is impossible to kind of like really define what makes a noir film because there are so many subgenres. They all do seem to have kind of a sense of fatalism to them. And certainly... A focus on like the displaced, the outsider, um, the lower rungs of society, if you will, and the criminal element. Beyond that, like there's some trappings and you can say like, like everybody agrees like Maltese Falcon is a film noir. It's a very early film noir, but not necessarily the other versions of that movie. There were two other versions made in the decade previous to the Maltese Falcon, and those don't normally get brought up as examples of film noir but 1941 version with bogart is considered a classic so it really is kind of like just a a frame of mind i guess it it is in the eye of the beholder in a way it's very amorphous and i'm not sure i'm going to be able to like define it over this summer but it's probably (laughs) a that will come up again and again
1: yeah I, i was looking at several lists to come up with ideas for uh for the series uh so we could you know do a pair of pictures together and it was so it was all the lists were different some some move, crime movies were in lists that it weren't in other ones and it was just it was so i i feel like some um which is fine some uh film critics take a really broad uh, definition of film noir where others are more specific uh about the genre but i i kind of like the free open um that kind of free open because if you think of like Taxi Driver it's sort of like a neo noir and it doesn't I never really think about it as a neo noir movie but it it has a lot of those elements that that you do find in in, in noirs and, and what you said with Ebert's quote about uh the hero in a bad situation only it's it's kind of different in in Taxi Driver where it's that situation but almost the hero is unaware of how much of an outsider he is, and how different his way of thinking and nonconformity is, and how alienating it is. But I think that all kind of contributes to, to the whole style. And film art to me feels a lot like the film, the, the the visual version of existentialism, existentialism, where it's hard to define specifically what it is, but it's this kind of movement that happened at this time. And he, this is like the body of work, and then now it's a, it's evolved or come back into into the into mainstream films with a lot of like Coen Brother movies and things like that. And I, I think that's why I really like noir. And *They Live by Night* is sort of a different a, a different take on on the noir. I, I think at the time the turn hadn't even been started to they, they hadn't used the term film noir yet. I, I think it was in the fifties. Uh, that it started so when this movie came out it wasn't adhering to any style uh, specifically it was just doing this thing but a lot of uh, directors, especially at RKO were kind of following this similar style for uh, a variety of reasons and this one I think spawns one of the more popular type of movies, the, the couple on the run. Uh, you think of natural born killers, and you mentioned Bonnie and Clyde, and just kind of like that trend of a couple uh, on the run from the law. And even more recently, with uh, that movie Queen, Queen and Slim, it's kind of like a take on that. It's like it's something, something in noir that actually it, it, it has an attraction to the mainstream, mainstream because it does keep coming back in that aspect.
0: I, I think I like you. I prefer the more open and expansive. Definition of film noir. And to, to go back just a second, uh, film noir as a term was coined in 1946 by uh, Nino Frank, French critic. Ah, okay. Or at least That's two years before, right? Yeah, yeah. It was first applied to Hollywood films by him. And, uh, you know, it, it was a picture of the, or it was to apply to these kind of like post war, very fractured psyche type crime dramas where it's about the sickness of the soul. But, you know, it, it, its roots go back so far. Its roots go back to German Expressionism. There's an argument you can make that M is a film noir. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's also the French poetic realism films. Like, um, I don't know if you've ever seen uh, La Bete Humaine, yeah. The Human Beat, yeah. or Pepe Lamoco. Uh, they both starred Jean Gabin. Um, I'm, I'm butchering the name, I'm sure. But those those are not noir films, but, you know, like, would fit that mold with just a few tweaks. I mean, I, I like, I like being expansive about it just cause it, it like brings up the continuum that is film that there's really like the, that these, these harsh genre borders are pretty much just marketing tools. Right. right like they, yeah. don't, they don't really mean anything. The movie can be many different things at once. So I guess, I guess to get to they live by night specifically, like I said, I, I really enjoy how this this movie doesn't quite hold your hand. There's a lot of things that we get, like information that we get through exposition, and even that exposition can sometimes be fractured. It's it's not it's not like somebody sits down and tells you what happened or what what a person did in the past. We get little bits and pieces here and there. So by the end of the film, we've got a larger image of the whole. I want to say I. I really like these two kids, <laughs> like Kathy <laughs> and Bowie. Yeah. Because they're, they're not really, like Bowie's the one that's a criminal. Um, he was in prison at, since the age he was 16 for a murder that he allegedly helped commit. But it doesn't, it kind of doesn't sound like he really did it. It, it. He was just kind of like wrapped up in something bad. He's not violent by nature. It's just he's kind of had a, a shitty life and been in some shitty situations. And he's so stupid like he's just he is not that like uh, what's the word what's what's the word i'm looking at and talk about stupid i can't think of the word Um, but he's kind of guileless like he doesn't he's naive he trusts the wrong people like his plan that he's going to break out of prison rob a bank so that he can afford a lawyer and have his conviction for murder overturned like (laughs) he just kind of goes along with the wrong people but he's not like a bad guy he's he's kind of sweet He's very I, I,
1: naive. He's like a child a lot of the times. <laughs> Actually, well, they both kind of are.
0: They are. There's that moment when they're hiding out from, like, he's hiding out at, um, a kind of a little safe house out in the middle of nowhere. And the highway patrol goes by at a certain time every night. And Kathy drags him into into a garage and says, it's "Highway patrol, they come by every night." And he starts to just count, like whisper, like he's holding his hands to his head. And she gets the idea, like, suddenly she's been viewing him as just a criminal. And now she's seeing, like, he's a scared kid. Yeah. (laughs) She's like, how old are you? And he's 23. And how long have you been in prison? Seven years. And he tells the story about his, his, well, I think he tells the story about his, like, growing up later. But, like, you get this idea that, like, he went into the prison as a child. Yeah. And has not, like, emotionally matured at all. He's he's definitely
1: yearning for for stability. I think that's why that relationship seems so. Although it is sweet, it's very kind of off because it's almost like they're like he's playing house, and so is uh, uh what's her name? Uh, Kichi? is that her name?
0: Kichi is what they call her, but her name's Cat
1: Yeah, I think that kind of shows that he's sort of looking for uh, a, a stable domestic life to hide i guess or recover from 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 the past that he has lived um up up until this point up uh, up until me meeting uh kichi
0: yeah there is a an aspect that does not ever feel real about their domestic life when they're they're like preparing for christmas they're living in this like um in this cabin this rented cabin and everything is like really happy like too happy you know it's not gonna last yeah (laughs) but I do think that there is a, a an arc to his character and maybe both of them, they do grow. They do grow once they have the stability of this relationship. Um, by the end of the movie, I mean, he still is coerced into trying to rob another bank, which goes horribly, but he is, he is more certain. He is more assured. He kind of holds his own against the other uh, uh, Chickama and T-Dub, is that the other guy's name? Yeah, T-Dub, yeah. He kind of he doesn't quite hold his own, he's not able to fully stand up for them, but he's able to like speak for himself a little better. It seems like he does blossom a bit, having st- you know, domestic stability. Um, and certainly by the end of the movie, he like we're we're gonna cover this a bit, but by the end of the movie, he is like really standing up to Chickamauga and just like takes command of that situation, and Chickama is the one that is completely falling apart, yeah. Also th-
1: Chickama is, is jealous of how the media has portrayed uh Bowie as the leader of like the mastermind of this whole enterprise. When, like you're saying, he's not very bright and, and Chickama wants all the glory, and now he, he now he his character, uh not Chickama's character, but um Bowie's character is kind of growing into that part, into that role that the media has sort of uh Shown everyone else,
0: yeah. Because he there's a scene where there's a car accident and Chickama takes him out of the car and shoots a cop that's yeah that stopped at the scene and leaves Bowie's gun in the car. So when the you know the other police show up, they get the fingerprints off the gun. They think it's Bowie that shot the cop, and from there on out, the the media and the police are just kind of like, oh, Bowie's in charge of this gang, but Bowie is really just being dragged along to everything. Yeah. <laughs> He doesn't really want to be part of it. It's just he sees it as a means to an end, and eventually he's trying to get away from it. But is still considered by everybody from the outside as the one in charge. And it's it it's kind of funny. It's kind of sad. There's yeah. a moment in near the end of the movie when he's uh, he's being sold out. Like one of their compatriots in the criminal underworld is basically turning him in to the police to get her husband out of jail. Yeah. Maddie and the the warden has this line where he's talking about um, he has this like really intense moment of clarity in the middle of this movie where he's he's signing the paperwork that, that he'll be let out if uh, if Bowie is caught where he says that like you shouldn't feel bad about this because he's going to go back to committing robberies and robbing banks it's the only life that he knows <laughs> uh-huh. then he says maybe that's our fault it probably is <laughs> like, all right this movie realizes how bullshit the american prison like yeah like uh, prison structure is it's turned this 16 year old boy into somebody who can really only live a criminal life there's no chance for him to live a normal quote-unquote life
1: yeah and he's been and he's been uh do, doing this all his life so like he grew up with this life around him and He's still a kid. He's impressionable. I mean, the two other characters that that are that that drag him along are much older. Fairly Granger's look is very young, boyish. <laughs> he could be playing a teenager in a different movie. Um, he just has this very kind of innocent look and someone who doesn't uh, really has shape his own ideas. Um, and a lot of that is just kind of going with the flow <laughs> and he gets dragged into a lot of like really bad stuff and it seems like he can get out and i think that's where the noir aspect comes in usually it's a character a main character who is uh ineffective in a certain way maybe uh something hinders them physically uh but then it's it's usually a story of their decline and 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 how they come to usually die because that's usually the the how these movies end for the main characters? There's no escape from this world. The only escape is 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 death. And I think that there was no real chance of Bowie ever having uh, a happy home life because he never had that example. Uh, everything he knows uh, is 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 very surface level things that we all kind of know. But I think that he he has a very tragic tale and story, and so does. So does kichi and and the way that they 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 follow for each other because those moments are really sweet and 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 are very touching the way that they're sort of discovering and exploring love in a very naive and innocent way um that it it's 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 such a nice little glimmer in the movie, which is mostly pretty sad and uh and at times violent uh but it's it's just an it's an interesting take on on the noir because there's no real uh as as far as you can say maybe maddie but femme fatale i mean maddie kind of is directly related to his death so you can maybe call her a femme fatale in that aspect but it's such a brief moment it's not even part of the scope of the movie itself it's more of the and, and it's stated early on in the movie with the uh, there's some, some kind of quote about, uh, about uh, his fate very early on where it kind of sets the tone like, oh, this guy's not going to live long. He's still like a young kid. And, you know, this is how that story goes and how it ends.
0: Yeah, the opening is like a shot of the two of them looking very happy. And there's text on the screen saying, this boy and this girl never had a chance to live in the world that you and I know. And it does set up that they're not going to end in the happiest place and this that's what makes this most a noir film i think is just the fatalism yes of this film and we kind of jumped ahead well there's a lot of i want to go i want to talk about in there maddie is maybe what the closest to what this film has to a, a femme fatale you're right but she's not even a, a true femme fatale because she's not motivated by like what a femme fatale usually is. She is, not yeah. try, she is not trying to do wrong by anybody. She just like is desperate to get her husband out of jail and it's been so long and he's yeah. getting older and she's not even setting Bowie up to die. Bowie dies at the end, spoiler alert. Yeah. <laughs> he's, the, he's, he's going to just like get one last look at his his wife, his pregnant wife and leave a note for her about where he's going and that he'll send for her and the cops are waiting for him and they tell him to turn around with his hands up and he reaches in his pocket for the note like really quickly like he turns around like he's pulling a gun but he's pulling the note out and they shoot him Now, I'm, I'm not saying that's justified uh, you know a cab but um, yeah. she is not necessarily setting him up to die yeah and he feels bad about what she's doing like you could see she's kind of goading him towards like going like instead of just sneaking off going into the trap but you can see it on her face that she's just like feels so terrible about it um i have a lot of sympathy for her especially like there's a scene early on where t-dub and Bowie come back to the house they've rented while they're staking out their first job and she's locked herself in a bedroom and Chickamau is like laying on the couch like really happy and she like when they're inside for a few minutes, she calls out like T-dub and he's like, yeah. And she comes out and she's looking really kind of scared. And he, it, you know, he, he describes it as saying, I just, she's so dry. I just wanted her to take one little drink, but you get the idea he'd been trying a lot more than that while they were gone. Yeah. Probably trying to assault her. And you think about the, the, the people that she's dealing with while her husband is in prison and how tough her life must've been that I'm like, You know you don't ever think she's a villain for what she does like it's super understandable why she does everything she does in the film
1: yeah yeah of course i yeah i agree with that i i mean there yeah like there are a lot of things in this movie that are sort of like a are less determined more of a a gray area uh and i think that ray does a really good job in adding like a humanistic touch to 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 these noir movies that he's made, uh, he does that I think in on dangerous ground as well, because there is a lot of kind of emotion in this. There are they are crime movies, crime movies, but there's a lot of emotional depth to the characters, uh, to the things that the the two main characters want and desire, um, and and then everyone else and what they're what they're after in 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 the film. Um, I think that. That's what I really like because the, the, the thing with, at, the, at the end of the movie when she's reading the letter is a very touching moment to, to, to close on, on, on his words uh, from this young guy who lived this life that was not really, you know, by choice is kind of a product that he's a product of his environment and that's all he knows and that's all he can, can continue to partake in and it's a dangerous life. And it's a dangerous world, and then ultimately that that that
0: world consumes him. So to talk then about his death, uh, there's more I want to get to, but we're we're kind of like on this. So uh, he's killed. We never see the cops. We hear them talk, and the most we see is they one cop steps into frame. And we see like his arm holding a gun, like his legs, mm-hmm. um, and then it cuts to something else. So we never see the cops at the end. I think the only cop we see in the entire movie is the one that gets shot after the car accident. But uh, while he's dying, there's a train going by in the distance that we also don't see, but the sound of it is dominating the soundtrack. It's just like the loudest noise there is, is the train whistle and the chugging along. And I love love trains in noir films. I mean, I love noir films set on trains. I love films set on trains. But even when we don't see them, trains in a noir film are so symbolic uh, about what the film is usually about. Because a noir film is usually following a character that wants to escape whatever situation they're in. They're, they they are hopeful that they're going to get to a better life, that they're going to get out of whatever you know mess they're in. And uh, a a train kind of like offers that hope. It's it, it you know it it is something that takes you away. It's kind of a particularly American, particularly romantic style of travel that we have, like, like there's just something about the idea of traveling on a train, whether you're just like, you know, a hobo riding the rails or (laughs) like you're in a dining car or a sleeping car. There's something about it that is so appealing. And yet that's kind of an illusion, right? It, It, there is no turning on a train. There's no going back on a train. You're stuck on that track and you can only go to the predetermined end of the line. And that is always in a noir film, such a like a really thematically rich underlining of the message of the movie that I I always really love it. It always like perks up my ears whenever there's like the sound of a train, even or a shot of a train in a movie. Yeah, there's a
1: uh, modes of transportation really play a large part in this movie. Uh, it's uh it's about two people traveling, you know, trying to stay away from uh trying to trying to not to get caught, but they they travel by car, by bus. Um, and it's this <laughs> it's this kind of interesting road journey that they take uh together. I like I really <laughs> I don't know why, but I really like the scenes with uh when they get married, when they get off the bus, um, and the I forget his name, but the really eccentric salesman uh, that's kind of trying to upgrade their their wedding, but they just want a simple thing. Uh, I really like that scene, and <laughs> especially when when the 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 organ player starts playing the the wedding theme, and <laughs> they each do the motion to like no, they they don't want like the the it's just like a sort of like marriage of convenience type of thing. But I like how this guy just like, he's a business guy, a businessman first, like he, I wanna give people happiness if, you know, if they can afford it. And they happen to be able to afford the, the I guess the luxury of being able to get married and, and being able to buy a ring and a, and a car and a place uh, so they can have a place for a, for a honeymoon. Uh, I just like that that character is so, is, is selling uh, happiness or to those who want it uh, for a price
0: yeah and they go back to him later on because he he has the idea that that guy can help him get to Mexico, get out of the country,
1: yeah, which he is can't a, at the
0: end yeah
1: that was a, which was really weird to come back to it's like actually yeah that's I can't that's something I can't give you <laughs>
0: yeah uh i he's such a child in this movie that scene we talked about earlier when they come back, and it turns out like Maddie is hiding out from Chickama. She's so upset at Chickamaw that she throws a mirror at him and when it cracks on the wall, he just uh Bowie turns back, like so uh, like upset. And he's like, That's seven years. Yeah. <laughs> like he looks like he's like really scared. <laughs> yeah. I'm such a child in this movie. It's also
1: supposed to be the same amount of time that he was in prison, right? Yeah, yeah, that's true. Yeah. I actually
0: didn't piece that together.
1: I did yeah, I did like that reaction. I'm like, that's seven years it's like almost like oh my god like i'm i'm set up for another seven years of misery
0: yeah sure. <laughs> i think really right now the only thing I, oh no there's a couple of things i want to talk about the second bank heist because they're living kind of like peacefully out in the middle of nowhere and they're happy and she is pregnant and Chickamaw shows up and is kind of like strong arming buoy back into doing another job and I, I i was never quite sure why they tracked him down like they, they were so set on him coming back to do the job and not just finding somebody else because they they just needed a driver right like yeah uh, i don't know why they would have wanted him why they couldn't have just let him alone maybe it, it's a bit of superstition because he he was such good luck the first time but uh Whatever it is, he, he decides to go with Chickamaa only to say no. Like he's saying like, know, oh, I'm not going to do this, but I need to be done with them. And he goes off and it, they, they kind of like get pretty violent with him. And it cuts from them saying, we're doing this job, basically, to Chickamaa and Bowie racing away from a failed heist. And you hear on the radio that it didn't like that the gang has struck again, but was not successful. And that one of them was shot at the scene and uh the other may be wounded it it struck me like it's a very reservoir dogs cut (laughs) yes (laughs) yeah right or you know if we want to go back go city on fire but it was such an interesting thing like we're not even going to show a bit of it we're not going to show any of the planning we're not going to show what they want to do we're just going to cut immediately to the next scene and pay attention and you'll figure out what happened (laughs) Yeah,
1: that's a kind of more modern device to not show the action. So it's, I feel like it's maybe a little ahead of its time for what? For, what is this, 48? I think 1948. For, yeah, for 48. It's just a, such a cool uh, cinematic device to use so early on. And, and just the ferocity and, and, and intensity of that scene, just how it's already kind of going. Uh, I really like that. It's just, yeah, they, this movie has a really cool uh, atmosphere that that it's it's such a strange blend because it 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 feels like noir but it doesn't it feels like there's more uh there more not just about the psyche maybe like you were saying earlier about uh the american prison system which i think on dangerous ground kind of touches on a a bit as well um but there's just a lot more going on this movie definitely feels there's something very american about this movie and the way that everything is sort of perceived and it focuses on like the little guy, the the guy who you know is normally not the subject for uh, your Hollywood, your typical Hollywood movie. Um, and just you know, it's it's it's, and it's sort of a pre- the movie itself is sort of a, a precursor to, to how movies would be marketed uh, in the 50s and 60s, and and going forward uh, to to young people to 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 uh, almost teenagers i guess teenagers and and those in, in the early 20s and i think that this movie it, I, this movie wasn't su- successful at the box office but it did kind of it was like a prototype to that sort of uh, that type of movie
0: yeah it this movie surprised me in how much like right off the bat it looked like it was kind of like a a youth picture like the way that we're, we're seeing this cars speeding away and uh Farley Granger is in the back and he's like waving his coat around and he throws it out for a minute. It looks like it's just a group of teens that are out partying. Cause we're not close enough to really see who's in the car. And it's all these crane shots. And then it it's when the tire goes out and they <laughs> run off the road that we realize like, Oh no, three of these people are pretty old. And one of them is a is basically a kid, yeah. but it did start out and it had moments of kind of like a, a juvenile drama also had a lot of moments of melodrama more than I was expecting, like just like mm-hmm. kind of like the style of acting between the two, between Bowie and Kathy, Catherine or Kichi is is uh, is more weepy and melodramatic than I was expecting, or you would expect from a film noir. I mean, I liked it all. It, it, it was yeah. just, um, this movie did seem to have a little bit more going on than I, I mean, I, I kind of expected it because of Nicholas Ray and Nicholas Ray usually puts a lot packs a lot into what he does but this was his first film so maybe i just wasn't expecting as much yeah
1: i didn't i didn't realize it was his first film until until after i I was looking up his other movies on imdb i was very surprised
0: i was like oh first film wow well that that's interesting because the next movie we're talking about on dangerous ground came out three years later and that's his eighth film. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Like directors, <laughs> American directors don't work like that anymore. <laughs> nope. <laughs> you, have to, you have to go like, I think the only person that does it is, well, I mean, there's a lot of like Hong Kong directors and Mike, of course, even though he's slowed down though. Yeah. Um, one thing also, one other thing I have in my notes is how much, how many overhead shots there are mainly when they're driving, like all the, a lot of the driving scenes, are shot from either cranes or helicopters mm-hmm. i'm yeah. assuming helicopter i'm not sure how they did but I'm i I think aware. yeah i think they did use helicopters for those shots which that that always seems to imply like the the smallness of the characters in the universe and the mm-hmm. scene, like kind of like in all powerful beings overlooking them maybe not all powerful but it's just like it kind of implies um like something else watching the characters, right? And how yeah. tiny they are, which mm-hmm. i that's also something that I, I perk up at in movies nowadays. <laughs> no, yeah, definitely. I Yeah,
1: there's a lot of, of that, which I thought was really cool. Um, it's a movie that it feels like it's con- constantly moving, like it doesn't. Um, it, it seems to just, you know, it's it's sort of moving along going forward, which kind of uh, relates to the the title of the movie you know as these people are trying to still live their lives uh beyond the shadows and uh, and, uh trying to uh get out of this spiral <laughs> that they're in
0: yeah there's a line later on where they're driving and they're always driving at night mm. uh Catherine, or kichi and Bowie, where where Kichi says that she kind of wants to see the country in the sunlight or you know like yes up and, like it's nice to wake up with the sun like um yeah so I mean making the title literal they live by night yeah uh, do you have anything more you want to talk about anything more in your notes
1: uh no i think I think that was it for for they live by night it's a movie it, definitely check it out it's, it's it's really good um I enjoyed watching it uh the second time um yeah it's it, it, you know it's not the best more or but it's it's a very enjoyable film
0: yeah no i I really uh, liked it a lot I saw it. A- I saw a lot in there to enjoy. Really good uh, character actors and all the side bits. Everything, like everything in the movie, works. I, I think it's really good. And uh, we're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back with the next in our in our double feature here, uh, our second Nicholas Ray film on Dangerous Ground. <laughs>
1: Good look at this man. Don't blame him if his face is hard, tough, if his eyes are cold and cruel, if his fists talk and make talk. Jim! Oh. You know what Brawley told you when he put you back on the job?
0: What kind of a job is this anyway? Garbage, that's all we handled.
1: Yes, he's lived with corruption all his life breathing the evil stench wherever he walks. Alluring arms can't touch him. Bribing hands can never reach him. Only the worst can he see in people. And only violence can satisfy the hate inside of him. Until one day, a dangerous manhunt leads him to the strangest woman he has ever met.
0: My brother's name is Danny. I know he has to be caught. But if Frank catches him, he'll kill him. With you, he'd be safe. Please, promise me he'll be safe. Put that knife down and come with me, Danny. You know my name. You coming in? Don't come in. I'll cut you. <laughs> in 1951, On Dangerous Ground follows Jim Wilson, a New York City policeman who is coming apart at the seams and becoming increasingly violent and unstable. After brutalizing one too many suspects and civilians, he is shipped upstate to assist in the manhunt for the murderer of a young girl. While there, he meets Mary Malden, played by Ida Lupino, who is losing her sight and whose younger, intellectually disabled brother may have committed the murder. Mary challenges Jim's distrust of his fellow humans and his entire lone wolf attitude, which sets the stage for uh, another noir-inflected melodrama from Nicholas Ray. This is one I'd seen before. I've seen this several times, and it's kind of a favorite. I'm I'm really glad you picked this. I was hoping somebody would want to talk to me about it. (laughs) Uh, So I, I saw this. The first time I saw this was actually Right after I moved down here, uh, I think the same year I moved down here, uh, I've talked about it already, This the inspiration for this, partially this whole summer, Summer in the Shadows, is uh, TCM in 2015 had a Summer of Darkness, which was a, a big film noir marathon. And they had an online course as well for a couple of months where you, you basically just did like read some articles, did some little like, you had to write a little essays and stuff it was really simple but it was fun to just kind of like immerse myself it was before I was working I, I had started working but I was only working a couple days a week down here and so I was just like immersing myself all summer in film noir I would scour all of the streaming services I would go to the library I would um I got Netflix on disc by mail for a, a month so I could get <laughs> like I was really like yeah watching as many of these as I could and that's the first time I saw this, and I watched it once or twice since then. But it was um, it was one that like really struck me as. as I mean, I, I don't want to make it sound like this is like my favorite. I just think <laughs> that it was one that I, I watched, and I was kind of surprised by how much was in it, and how everything in the movie supported the the theme of this, which is a you know a a police officer who is overwhelmed by everything that he sees and closing himself off and the need to, or the kind of the need for human connection in this world. Um, uh, anyway, I'm talking so much. What's your history with this film? I
1: I actually saw it uh, fairly recently as well. I don't remember exactly when, but it might've been like three or four years ago. Um, and I was really struck by this film. I thought it was really just great and profound and, like i said for, uh, about they live by night also very emotionally complex that i really like and everything felt not determined uh, as good or bad it, it was it was there was a gray area that this film um kind of covers and i really like that this is only my second time watching it i've been wanting to rewatch this for so long and i'm glad i finally did it i think i still had the same reaction uh to this film that i did when i first watched it uh, on dangerous ground is uh, by this point I knew Nicholas Ray and I was watching more of his films um, and this one struck me because of the poster that I had seen of Robert Ryan walking along Ida Lupino in the snow um, and just thinking like whoa uh, a noir uh, set in uh, to a snowy background that's kind of cool I'm going to check this out um, and yeah I, I just I, there's a lot
0: of things I love about this movie, but uh, yeah. It's, it's just a fantastic movie that snowy backdrop <laughs> you know, shot in Colorado. A lot of it's out on location, man. This movie made me so homesick and like, I am not, I don't miss Alaska specifically, but I miss snow. I'm I miss, you know, uh, pine trees and, um, uh, the cold certainly right now. <laughs> uh, I, I miss so much about it and, I talked about this with Rick recently where even in commercials or short YouTube videos, I will just sit there and look at the background. If there are trees moving in the wind, because we, I miss it so much. <laughs> uh, yeah. It, it, that, that is, you know, partially why maybe this movie is such a, a hit for me as well. It's just like this setting is really, um, really pleasing to me.
1: Are you also a really big fan of Nolan's Insomnia?
0: Uh, is that Alaska? It is. Yeah. It is a fake. It was filmed in British Columbia. I'm pretty sure almost oh. everything in Alaska film or set in Alaska is filmed in British Columbia. Yeah, um, and it, it's not a real Alaskan town, and <laughs> it, it takes place in a part of Alaska that I, I've been to, but not like a lot. So, oh, okay. Like it, I think that takes place down the panhandle. So it's, it's kind of closer to the Pacific Northwest than where I was living, but it, I mean, it's close enough. I, I do like that movie. I haven't seen it since theaters. Actually. It's like the one Nolan movie I've only ever seen in theaters.
1: Oh, really? Damn. <laughs> yeah. I haven't I, seen that movie since around that
0: time. I mean, I liked it. I yeah. just don't know why I never, I never bought it. I never. Uh,
1: yeah. It's one I want to revisit. Cause I, I, I remember people were kind of crazy about that movie. Um, and nolan had just done memento i think that and and following those i think that was this is his third movie um but i remember i liked it when i saw it but i was also i I was in high school when
0: i saw that so (laughs) yeah it's also one of one of robin Williams' successful dramatic roles yeah yeah he, he can do drama pretty well but that that's one that like I think that and one hour photo came out around the same time and I I much preferred his role in Insomnia.
1: <laughs> oh yeah, definitely. Yeah.
0: Um uh, what was I? Where was I at? What was I gonna say? We're
1: talking about the the snowy background. I think that's how yeah. we yeah. got all the way to Alaska.
0: <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> I so the the character of Jim, I mean, my my Thoughts on the police have gone undergone such a momentous change since 2015. Uh, <laughs> it, not that I, I like I was never in love with the police. I was, but you kind of like, I'm I've gone from thinking that like somebody like Jim, who is beating everybody he comes into contact with basically.
1: Oh, my goodness. Like,
0: just any, like some guy who is like, you stupid police or whatever i was just he's like they they stopped that guy because he fits the description he's like i was just running (laughs) and like he he like says like what what does he say not stupid police but he says something like that dumb cop i think he he calls him a dumb cop and then like his partners have to restrain him because he's gonna try and beat him up and like his partners kind of are you know seen as as the more standard cop and i think at the time i would have felt that jim is an outlier like he's like oh yeah he's like the lone can- like the loose cannon on the force yeah and now it just feels like everybody on the police force is like him
1: <laughs> yeah it's it's kind of like the prototype to like uh like that, that kind of like lone wolf cop like uh like in lethal weapon it's mel gibson or like dirty harry um because i can't think of any other movies that with dealing with cops that really do that but he is a hothead throughout most of this movie where he's like you said beating people up roughing them up uh, he says he uh, he gets he gets his way uh, someone even i think one of the lines asked him like you don't care about people do you <laughs> which is like man this guy's a cop and he doesn't care about people and he well, yeah, his
0: one partner oh sorry go ahead
1: no i was just gonna say this guy carries a gun and a badge like that's like you've given him all the power
0: <laughs> yeah he he doesn't he he doesn't want any connection there's that scene where they go to the pharmacy and the guy uh, I, kind of the pharmacy his partner's got like a bad shoulder and so uh they go there and the guy is like kind of giving him a massage and giving him something for the shoulder and they're out at the soda or the fountain the counter and the woman that's working there clearly has a crush on robert ryan uh, jim wilson in this and he can't handle it he just like turns around and leaves and decides to just like sit outside uh, by himself, and he he can't connect to other people. He doesn't want to. He's kind of like pushing everybody away in this. And there's there's a scene after he's uh, gone too far, beating up a um, beating up a suspect, where his partner is like restraining him, and uh, Rob Ryan's got this speech about all the the stuff, all the mess that they see, all the crap they deal with every day. And he asks his partner, he's like, how do you live with yourself? And his partner says, I don't, I live with other people. And that's like, <laughs> that's a very pat line, but that, that is kind of the, the entire message of this movie. Right. Cause from the very beginning, we see his partner's getting ready to go to work. One of them, his wife is like, like, I don't want you to go. She's making him food. The other one, he's got seven kids and he's sitting with them all watching some something on TV. Yeah. He has to be called away to go to work and he, they go to get him and he's sitting there eating dinner by himself in an efficiency apartment, just rifling through mugshots. Like that's all he does (laughs) is just surround himself with the worst of the worst or he sees as the worst and pushes everybody else away.
1: Yeah. There's a kind of, I like that sort of alienation that the character has because I, it, it, we'll get to it when we talk about the end, but the end kind of sort of contradicts the rest of the movie. But that might have been just a Hollywood thing. But I we'll like talk about that. I've yeah. got it. <laughs> <laughs> but I think that Robert uh, casting Robert Ryan as his character was a really good choice because Robert Ryan is. A scary guy when he gets angry (laughs) in this movie like he's really like in your face aggressive he's holding on to your shoulders and he's shaking you up and I thought he was like really perfect in this role of this I don't give a fuck about anything or anyone and I get my way no matter how you know rough I have to get and Ryan is just I don't know there's just something really raw about his performance he just goes for it uh, and is like really terrifying, which is something you shouldn't feel uh, about your
0: main character, who is you know supposed to be a cop. <laughs> yeah, well, there's there's something about him. He, his eyes are so black and shiny, like he has shark's eyes almost. Yeah. And there's just something about his gaze that is is cold. But I, I will say, like he is falling apart. He is spinning out and boiling over with rage. But there's that scene where he goes home, he walks home by himself and he plays catch with the kid delivering his paper. Like he's really friendly with the kid. Oh yeah. It's like, it's kind of like he, the only people that he doesn't view with contempt in this film are children. Although we only see the one. Yeah, And maybe, maybe he sees that kid as uncorrupted, which is going to be challenged later on, but it it does kind of seem like he views everybody that is an adult as, uh, as corrupted or, um, or just a problem that he'll have to deal with, like a mess he'll have to clean up.
1: Yeah, there's the contrast with the Ida Lupino character, where they have that discussion, where she points out that he doesn't trust anyone, and she has to rely, she has to trust on rely on the on, on the trust of everyone because she can't see; she's losing her vision. Vision, so she's sort of forced by her surrounding, or I guess by her. Uh, by her uh, blindness to trust people Um, and it seems like it's working out for her but uh, Robert Ryan's what is his name Wilson is yeah Jim Wilson's character um, doesn't really want that it's sort of like her uh, Ida Lupino's character started proving it works just open yourself up to this and you know and trust people you don't have to have this guard up all the time um, because it, it extends past, you know, his job too. It's not just, you gotta be cold to be a cop. It's, it's like, that's just how his life is and how it goes. When he's talking to that girl uh, and he's like holding her and she says, one of the things she says is like, you'll squeeze it out of me, right? Or something like that. Um, I like that crossfade of Robert Ryan descending like down the dark stairs. And it's sort of like his continual descent into uh, alienation from, from people. Like he just antagonizes everyone. It, it, everything is a conflict and a fight.
0: Yeah, so... Um, yeah, the the thing with Ida Lupino, um, once he gets there, like you kind of think that he and Ida Lupino are going, uh, Mary, Mary is her character's name, are going to be opposite poles. Like he is closed off and untrustworthy, untrusting, and she is completely open and trusting of everybody. You think that they're going to be on opposite poles, but I'm jumping ahead a little bit here, but once he gets to that upstate community, like that, air does him good, I think, but he, he comes <laughs> to that upstate community and yeah. finds that, um, well, let me just jump back a little bit. so he gets sent up to assist in the hunt for a murderer because the his boss is like, "Get out of here and let things calm down you're get you're you're going too crazy um He gets called up there, he drives for hours and arrives in the city apparently right after the murder has been committed, like they're chasing the killer into the woods <laughs> yeah. So I was like, I, I thought that was a bit of a weird, like, I don't know if that's a mistake or if, if they're, they've really just been chasing him around since uh, since the murder was committed, but it, yeah. it, it was kind of strange. But you he gets there, and I thought that it was going to be him as a fish out of water, like he's clashing with the locals because he's too violent, and it turns out that the entire community is swept up in this desire for biblical vengeance, like they're eye for an eye trying to get this person to kill them. And he has to suddenly be the voice of reason. So he kind of stuck in the middle between Ida Lupino and uh, the very relatively minor character of, uh, I think his name is Walter, the father of the girl who's been killed, um, who he ends up kind of uh, going off with to look for the murderer for most of the movie, or the rest of the movie anyway um so it is it is, it is interesting that like I, I you would expect them to be kind of like mirrored in a way but they're not like he's a little bit more towards her view of things than the father is
1: yeah i like the the comparison between like the country life and the city life like it, it definitely seemed like a lot of his anxiety is stemming from living in a in an in in urban <laughs> landscape um and he, I guess, in a way, escapes from that, even if it is temporarily. And he, he is, because he's he's more open. Like, and this goes back to what I was saying about they live by night, about like the gray area. When he was in the city, everything was more black and white. But when he's in the uh, in the small town, it seems like now everything can be uh, analyzed or taken an, in in a different point of view just because as a you know as a cop working on a case he should have arrested uh what is it danny um for you know being a suspect for the murder of the little girl but he doesn't he he's more compassionate about it
0: and yeah the, the the approach is very different he i think in the very very beginning once he gets to the town he is sympathetic more to the grieving father and it looks like he is going to help him carry out the, like he wants to go, he's like, yeah, let's go kill this guy who killed your daughter. That's what he deserves. Yeah. Like, and it, it, then it, it becomes a little bit more complicated for him because he meets, sorry, excuse me. Because he meets Mary and is immediately has feelings for her. Uh, in that way that we just kind of buy in movies. The, they get so close in this movie and you realize like, wait, they've only spent like 15 minutes together. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but they, he, he is immediately attracted to her and interested by her. And it turns out that her brother is probably the one who committed the murder. So now he's got a little bit more of an emotional stake and then is, is trying to rein in uh, the grieving father. Although there is that scene where they both steal a car. <laughs> and like, there's that woman who is just like pathetically kind of like, hey, no, you can't. <laughs> like, and then they immediately just roll the car, like, total that oh, car. Oh,
1: yeah. Over. Oh, my God. Yeah. Yes. I forgot about that. <laughs> uh, Very amusing. I like the. I really like the the score uh, in this movie. God
0: damn, it's so good.
1: Yeah, it's uh, Bernard Herrmann, and it sounds like a like a proto Psycho score, especially in the driving Mm -hmm. scenes, which reminded me a lot of like the music that's playing in the uh, driving scenes in Psycho when Marion Crane is uh, uh, trying to find a motel to stay at, and it's like pouring rain. Um, but it was, uh, it was so good. It was like, I didn't know Bernard Herman did the score and I didn't notice it the first time. And this time that's all I could notice. And it was just amazing.
0: It's so, and it starts like kind of, there's no fanfare. There's no RKO fanfare. There's no, Mm. no silence. Like there usually is in the beginning for a studio logo. It is RKO logo comes up and that bombastic, like really explosive score with like the high strings and just like the boom, 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 racing. The movie, like it is it gives the movie such momentum and the movie isn't exactly like a bullet shot out of a gun. It's not a movie that just like on its own moves, but the the score gives it so much energy. I I really loved it this time.
1: Yeah, Uh, the the, the movie does, it, it feels like two different movies at times uh it is a very short movie but we do spend a lot of time a lot more than i remember in the city itself before he goes on on this new assignment um so it it kind of shows two different sides of uh Wilson's character as uh as you know within the element of being a a, a cop and then in a more relaxed open setting kind of we get a, a window into that there, there, there maybe there is hope for this guy to, to, to let people in as he does with, uh, with uh, uh, I don't what's her name again? Uh, Mary's character. Amy. Mary, yeah. Um, it, it is an interesting sort of analysis of, of, of a character um, as he goes this sort of change uh, of not just setting, but emotional, um, emotional change.
0: Yeah, and there's there's a lot of growth with Jim. Uh, there's a lot of growth with Jim that happens in dialogue with Mary. They have a lot of conversations about trust and love and openness. And yet there's a lot more that happens through staging, that happens through the way characters are positioned and kind of like kind of visual cues. Mm-hmm. um i'm thinking of because okay so we're, we're kind of gonna skim past this part because it's pretty big development where uh jim finds danny hiding out in well he's kind of hiding out he knows he's being chased he admits to the murder but you you can tell he's he doesn't quite understand what he did and he doesn't understand like, he didn't understand what he was doing at the time and Jim is kind of advancing on him but he's also talking him down and then Walter the grieving father jumps in with his gun and immediately tries to shoot and then they are fighting Danny runs and uh there's there's a chase and Danny ends up falling off of a hill mountain type like a cliff and dying so I kind of jumped over a lot there do you want to talk about any of that I'm sorry (laughs) oh no yeah I
1: I did (laughs) No, um, yeah, it's it's really it, the fact that the that that Danny had a, a, a mental issues, I think was not something I would expect, you know from from this kind of movie because a, a lot of the mental issues that are in noir are subtle. and when it relates at least to the main character, they're subtle, it's, it's subtextual. Uh, and this one doesn't relate to the main character, but it's out in the open. And it's and it's something that that puts now crime into a new perspective. Like, like he, this person wasn't aware really of what they did in the same way that uh, in Of Mice and Men, uh, I forget the character, but in the same way that that character is unaware of what they've done in that book or any of the movies. Um, so just having that like sort of angle and then having that kind of uh, accidental um, sort of death just adds to the whole to that whole aspect of the movie that it's trying to. It's these sort of uh, things that just kind of happen with. And it's it's that fatalism that we were mentioning before. But it's done in a really like sort of subtle way, where it's not as overbearing as it it is in "They Live by Night." It, it's something that is kind of a consensus. It, it's aware. It's very tacit, and it just exists. It's not really the
0: driving force through this movie. Yeah, I I, I was kind of surprised by his um, his disability as well. The way it's played. Uh, it is, because then it, it the the dad has that line. Basically, he says, uh, "Well, he's just a kid himself." Like he immediately feels mm-hmm. bad, and he what he, he is young. I mean, he was an eighteen-year-old actor, who plays this like brief little moment pretty well. Like he, he really does look kind of lost and, yeah. and not sure what's going on. But this sets up like um, so. He go he carries the body, or the dad carries the body back. Mary comes out and knows that her brother is dead. And there's, a, there's some conversation there, but the, the framing I want to talk about next that I, I was kind of getting at was um, Walter the, the, gives Jim a ride back to his car and they're in the truck and the, the way they're framed in this. So all of the earlier scenes where Jim is in the car with his partners, Jim is in the back seat between them like it, it's more distancing, right? He's like sitting back there looking at mugshots, shots. And um, in this time he's sitting up front, he's sitting right next to Walter, but between them, you see the rear window and there's a hole in the window. Mm, yeah. And I for the first time I watched it, I was like, well, what does that mean? Cause it, it's very specific choice to, to tear a hole out through that window. It looks like it's like a, a plastic sheet window. Um, yeah. Because, it's clearly rear projection or, or a composite shot. And it would have looked more realistic and believable if they had kept the window intact. Yeah. (laughs) It it calls out how fake the backdrop is when you can see it that clearly in that hole, but it is a hole between them that it, that also seems pretty like ripe for metaphorical meaning that they, they both act, they're both like party to the accidental death of this guy who committed a kind of accidental murder himself this kid yeah. they they're kind of both responsible for the death of this kid so that's a hole between them but it also seems like this is a moment of change for jim where jim is kind of like leaving this area and he is kind of crossing a threshold where he's realizing he needs people so that hole could be letting in you know i mean i Maybe I'm reading way too much into it. It's kind of like letting in the fresh air,
1: in a way. Oh yeah, yeah. No, I can see that. I mean, he's sort of forced to to interact with more people in in the small town than he is. uh, Like in in the in the city, he's he's it's everything is so much more distant there's like a a sort of a defined line between his role in the city and and the people that live in it as a cop and in the small town even though he's still a cop for some reason it's just a completely different approach to his character um it, it he he is open to the connection that is Necessary for uh, for someone to lead a, a healthy, I guess, social life and to treat other people with kindness and, and respect, and it's just something that he obviously lacks. But being in this atmosphere at a at a different pace, it sort of it sort of changes it changes him, and then it makes you realize like the, the city plays a big part in, in noir movies. Um, if you think of films like like Jules Desson's like Night in the City and and things like that like how much of a character the city is and we get that in this movie as well with really beautiful and striking uh black and white cinematography a lot of shadows a lot of the things you associate with film noir and then it opens up to this super bright you know snowy backdrop and now this is this is now the a place where connection can can happen more freely it's more natural and it's like set against this natural backdrop which sort of naturalizes the social aspect of human interaction human relationships and um and I think this is where he where Robert Ryan's character wants to be I think maybe the ending kind of hints at that
0: cuz yes cuz there there is I mean it's not a I'm not anywhere near the first person to say there is an anonymity in the city that was he probably found comforting but was also not good for him because he could just leave any situation and go sit in a car he could just go back to his empty apartment whereas the this mountain community where it's a smaller community everybody kind of has to know each other uh even though he he's not there for very long he doesn't really ingratiate himself or or get it get kind of like into the community, he does find a connection there that he was probably uncomfortable with but also discovered he needed in a way. Uh, it certainly seems to have, have changed him quite a bit. Um, yeah,
1: there so, are, that is interesting because the, this, the case that he go, that he sent up there to is specific. There's like specifics. it's like a little girl's been murdered. but in the city he's just a, you know, you know he's just roughing people up it's 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 more like, it, it focuses on just one thing. Whereas in the city, it's like a series of crimes it's like nonstop it was like, now this is the next thing or this is the next, you know, the next assignment. And this one's just like, is this one thing that allows him to like sort of familiarize himself with all
0: the people there. So as he's leaving, there's a really cool POV shot or well a fade where there's a POV shot of Walter's truck driving, you know, down the, the snowy road cut like it fades to a pov shot of jim's car as he's driving back to the city alone and it's paved and it's more built up uh and he starts to kind of like think over things that were said to him by people there like you're kind of like how the loneliest people and are those that are always around people uh how you kind of need to give it get in or give in in order to get something out of this world. we've kind of like completely, or at least I've kind of completely glossed over the fact that Mary's blindness was at one point preventable, but she never went and had surgery done because she couldn't leave her brother who, who she was caring for and who clearly was troubled or not disabled. And that it may be too late now. And Robert Ryan, uh, Jim is trying to talk her into going to see the doctor again. Um, And this is what I'm saying, where, like, they've known each other less than a day. They've only spent a few, like, minutes, maybe an hour together. And he's like, you've never been scared of anything in your life. Why are you scared of the doctor? Like, you don't know that. You don't know anything about her. Um, (laughs) Very presumptuous of him. Yeah, but but he's driving back, and all of these conversations are playing in his head. And then we get to that ending that seems super happy, right? Where he, he is walking back into Mary's house, and Mary is coming down like, Jim? Or what, she's like Mr. Wilson. Yeah. Like I don't know if you notice. Once he gets to the 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 town, the upstate community, he's got those black gloves on, and the camera actually focuses on them a few times. They're kind of like menacing black gloves, like really, <laughs> really shiny. Um, he never takes them off the entire movie from that point on until the scene where he comes back. Mary coming down the stairs reaches her hand out and he reaches his hand out and they the like the very end of the movie is they grab hands and he's not wearing the gloves. Uh, Which I kind of think I want this to be a happy ending just because I I feel like yeah, like happy endings. I think this might be a dream sequence or a fantasy, like he's having a daydream as he's driving as he's driving home. You think so? It cuts from him driving and just listening to conversations they've had to fade there's a fade and he's walking in. It never shows him turn around. It never shows him drive up. It just shows him coming back into her house. Like he yeah. kind of like cinematically feels as if he is just daydreaming, having a continuation of those conversations in his Right, yeah. I, 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 yeah, I can see that. I. You know, I normally don't like
1: happy endings, especially in noir, because in noir you normally don't get, not always, but you don't always get a happy ending. Uh, but it was kind of, it was sort of the arc of that character. I think it, that ending was sort of appropriate and necessary. And the thing, I mean, I didn't even notice the thing about the gloves. I noticed him wearing the gloves, but I think to have to showcase the gloves throughout the movie and then have that scene at the end, I don't know if you, maybe Ray is trying to do it to throw us off, but it's so big and key for him to finally hold someone's hand without having to have a buffer zone in between but I, that is interesting It because the ending does feel not rushed but it's the way it's edited together it's kind of like boom boom and then final scene the end
0: <laughs> i actually don't know if, if i i don't know enough about nicholas ray um to know whether he would have done this on purpose but it just does feel yeah uh It does feel like it could be interpreted either way. And maybe he did mean it to be a happy ending and and it's it's kind of my, maybe it's my cynical nature that's looking for like, well, that doesn't, that wouldn't fit. That doesn't fit how bleak film noir is supposed to be. Mm -hmm. Uh, But there's something about it that does feel false even though it is kind of what the character feels like he should be going for. And it does feel fake in a way.
1: Yeah, yeah. Interesting, wow. That kind of blew my mind. It's like, whoa! I didn't. Yeah, that adds a whole other spin to this movie.
0: Yeah, I, I mean, like, I may be reading too much into <laughs> it, but it. Does feel like there's so much thought that's going into, yeah, how things are framed and and shown to you, that, uh, that it it it's strange to me that it happens so suddenly and you never actually see it. There's no transition to it. It's mm-hmm. just a fade, and he's there. Yeah. Oh, speaking, speaking of
1: fades, there, there's a lot of, like, crossfades in this movie, but one at the end, normally when a movie... Uh, wait, am I... No, actually, I'm thinking of the movie before, and I meant to mention it, and they live by night. Um, do you remember the last shot in the movie? Of uh, of uh, uh, Kichi? And uh, it looks like it's fading out, but it's actually the lights dimming, and then only, like, the the... the uh, her hair is backlit I just thought that was really cool because it's not it's not fading out to the the end title card it, it, it the lights are being dimmed and it looks really cool because it's like it's like a uh in real life like a fade fade out
0: interesting no I, I'm gonna have to go back and, and watch that again because like I said the quality wasn't the greatest yeah. so maybe I just missed it but. <laughs> yeah that was definitely really cool. I, the,
1: both films have really, really uh, good, uh, striking cinematography. I think, um, and Nicholas Ray, I think, is a little underrated I, as far as a director. I think um, he's done a lot of. I mean, uh, he's done the obvious Rebel Without a Cause, but then if you look at these two films, they're so they're so good, and they do uh, the way that they do noir is so is so different, but it's like dead on. Like, I think he was willing to explore like different areas and just, I don't know. There's just something about his 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 noir films in particular that are different, but so familiar at the same time.
0: Yeah, um, I'm sorry. I, I was kind of quiet there. I was looking up any information on the ending mm-hmm. and it, it did just say like, all I found was Somebody writing on it on trailers from Hell, <laughs> saying that the ending in the film isn't what Nicholas Ray had originally intended. But it doesn't say what Nicholas Ray intended. It just says it's not quite how he meant to end the story, <laughs> oh. which makes me like wonder if the studio, like RKO,
1: yeah. just wanted just maybe tack on that ending.
0: Well, if if so, he he left it in a way that you know, people who want to think of it one way could,
1: can, so. Yeah, it is also more dramatic to end it that way than to end it with Ryan uh, driving back to the city. There's not much to that, like, you <laughs> know. Yeah, and then I, I hearing, like, all those, you know, the, the, the voices and of the people who, you know, things that he heard there, um, yeah, it's, it's just, it has to build up to something because it would just kind of flatline there, like, it would feel so off to just end it.
0: Um, sorry, I know you gotta get going. I just, we'll cut, we'll, I, I, I'm not, maybe I can keep this in, but I'm reading uh-huh. a bit. Yeah. The film was recut by the studio. A big posse subplot was dropped from the snow sequences and the director's ending was lopped off in favor of a highly sentimental romantic finish. Many noir adepts deplore this finish as did Nicholas Ray, it has to be admitted that with it on dangerous ground becomes a highly satisfying drama about isolation and alienation.
1: I have uh, to, agree. yeah, I think I agree with that. Cause I actually do like it in this. It makes sense. Um, I think the, the movie is so well-written and the characters are so well-written that it, 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 this is one of those cases where a happy ending makes sense.
0: And I, I said that this movie was, he was a new york police officer but i, I it was filmed in la so it's oh, on la street yeah. so i guess upstate means like northern northern california even though it was filmed in colorado i guess northern california i mean it gets snow
1: well maybe maybe it was just shot here but set in 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 new york city or i'm sorry it was uh yeah shot here set in new york city because I, I can't think of very many places up north where it snows like in in northern california at least like the way it looked in the movie.
0: Because it, it doesn't look like it's winter where he is.
1: <laughs> it looks... Oh, it, you're right, yes, yeah. Um, I Yeah, I did, you know what? I did think that watching the movie because it, it switches and, and it's supposed to be just upstate, but it's very wintry uh, in, in the upstate part.
0: Oh, okay. I, I've got more information here. I'm sorry, I'm just like... <laughs> no, go ahead. I'm curious. But to this know will, more. We'll, we'll be done. Okay, originally Robert Ryan and Ida Lupino did not reunite at the end. Rather, her character was left crying while he went back to the city. However, Lupino felt that the ending was too downbeat and director Nicholas Ray allowed his leads to improvise a new ending, which made the final cut. Wow. So.
1: Oh, speaking of which, uh, Ida Lupino uh, is uncredited as director. I think uh, Nicholas Ray was sick for a few days and she took over.
0: Hmm. yeah for uh some 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 of that she's a really interesting figure too maybe I should do a an Ida Lupino episode yeah it's so crazy that
1: I mean there was Dorothy Arzner before her but to be like in Hollywood as an actress and then also be a director like it's so it's so like unlike the time and and she did it within the hollywoods it's so weird it, she has an interesting story i'm not too familiar with with the films that she's directed except for the hitchhiker but um and and her episode of the twilight zone uh but yeah i think she, her story is always really fascinating
0: yeah I'm, I'm always interested when i see multi-hyphenates in yeah. the 40s and 50s yeah you, you don't really think of like actors didn't direct very often actors didn't write and now now everybody is doing like kind of everything mm-hmm. but at the time everybody was really in their place you know like right th- they had their role and that's what they did so it is interesting especially her she's so successful at like kind of both uh in both parts she was in a lot of movies she was very successful as an actress she wrote a few things and as a director she wrote right as a director, she did several classic films and, and TV as well. so yeah it, it's interesting to see somebody with such a successful career in several different fields at this time in Hollywood.
1: Yeah, definitely. Have you ever seen have you ever seen The Hitchhiker? Oh yeah, yeah that movie is I I hadn't heard about it and I watched it uh, like maybe three years ago as well and I was like, whoa, this never heard of it and it was such an interesting movie. Um, another kind of road, uh, uh noir movie, which is, is I, I gotta rewatch it now that, that I'm watching a ton of noir right now. That's a really yeah. good one.
0: Yeah, it's really good. Um, okay. So do you have anything more you want to say about on dangerous ground?
1: Uh, no, uh, just if you haven't seen it, check it out. It's so good. Um, I think very highly of this, uh, noir. I love it so much. Um. It's yeah, it's worth your it. time. It's uh where did I watch? Criterion Channel, I believe.
0: It's yeah, on, I got the Criterion uh, Channel just to watch this again. Yeah. Um I will agree with that. I really really enjoy this one a lot. Uh the only thing I'm going to say now is that I I'm an idiot and I I think I called this on Deadly Ground several times in our texting back and forth, <laughs> like mixing it up with the Steven Segal, so. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. It's very, yeah, very similar title. It doesn't, (laughs) no,
1: yeah. Also, they live by night has a title that I confuse with they drive by night, not to be confused by uh, they live or the movie they
0: (laughs) or live by night, the Ben Affleck,
1: yeah, or live by night,
0: yeah. (laughs) Oh man, okay. Well, we're going to take a quick break, we'll be right back with uh, with our. Well, final goodbyes, wrap up some plugs. You know, we're not doing top fives anymore. I mm-hmm. was gonna say, do you have anything that you wanna like recommend something like? Um, recommendations. Well, I
1: what I mentioned at the beginning of the show, check out the Criterion channel, Neo Noir. They have 26 movies on there. Um, they have a lot of great stuff like the long goodbye. Um, I haven't seen any of a blowout, uh, Blood Simple, um, and I think it'll get you in the mood to to uh, for this series as well. And just you know, check out all the different type of movies that all the type of different type of uh, noir movies that are out there. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I have I haven't been watching as many movies. As I've been wanting to, and and, and coming back to movies uh, has been just mostly noir-filled. So, you know, the stuff I mentioned, and 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 <laughs> body heat, and uh, sorry, not body heat, uh, body double, um, <laughs> and uh, night moves, just stuff that I really enjoyed, uh, and and the, the two that we watched uh, for this episode.
0: Yeah, I. I'm not watching nearly as much as I used to. I'm I'm pretty much watching stuff for the show, <laughs> yeah. and like mm-hmm. it's just uh, it, it's work. I I'm getting kind of into a rhythm, and so hopefully soon I'll be able to get to this like like okay I, I get home I, I can watch something and you know it, yeah or or maybe it'll just be weekends for watching and <laughs> yeah that's uh, yeah all the ones you mentioned are really good. Uh, I kind of don't know what to recommend right now because I'm I'm still. Uh, Like working together what the upcoming episodes were I uh, are I know I'm really excited to kind of get into all of the different types of noir there are out there Um, I really want to do a comedy noir I might do one with Rick because we're gonna we're thinking about talking about dead men don't wear (laughs) plaid Dead men don't wear plaid (laughs) Yeah Oh sweet Coming up uh, I'm gonna be talking about some horror noir which I'm really excited about I'm Also really excited we're gonna be talking about very specific uh genre european sci-fi neo-noir so what do you uh, what are you gonna do you know what you're gonna do for that one yeah we're talking about alphaville and element of crime oh nice i love alphaville i have not seen it that's gonna be new to me oh sweet yeah where uh jessica scott is gonna be back oh nice yeah yeah he's on our last noir episode and it was a no-brainer once i decided to do this (laughs) you want to talk more yeah i'm so excited I am too. I am too. So before we get going, um, you've got your dial left for film uh, this is going to come out. You're still doing your summer of Kubrick. Um, any big plans? Anything, anything going on there? i um, no,
1: it's just still going through Kubrick's uh, films. Uh, next up. I, th- I, when is this coming out? Next week? This, is this coming week? Friday. Okay. So by then I think I would have, uh, we, we should be on Clockwork Orange. I'm um, doing that with Jordan, and he is watching it for the very first time.
0: So oh, I am, man, I can't wait. <laughs> yes,
1: and he wanted enough time to watch it multiple times. Uh, so I am really excited to talk to him about it, and I want to hear what he thinks. As that I is- I want to hear
0: if he actually watches it multiple times.
1: <laughs> yeah, I was curious about that too. Uh, but yeah, that, that's coming out soon. Um, and then I'm doing a few extra bonus episodes for Summer of Kubrick, and talk about some of the movies that are not in the 1001 movies. You Must See Before You Die, kind of just to cap off the whole thing. And it's been fun uh, re-watching uh, Kubrick's movies and discovering and rediscovering things. Uh, so that's what we're doing, at least for another month. Uh, that's what we're doing uh, on the show. And it's been so fun. And uh, you're going to be on there soon to talk uh, Barry Lyndon. Can't wait for that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I'm <laughs> That's about it. You can find us on social media at Twitter, Instagram, Facebook at Dial F podcast. And uh, usually I post the most on Instagram and that's where you can find uh, all the updates on the show, uh, all the new episodes and all that stuff.
0: Nice. Yeah, everybody give Dial F a a follow on Twitter, Instagram and all that. As for us, we are on Twitter and Instagram at Two Headed Pod. Give us a follow. Say hello. Drop us a line. There's an email if you want to ask any longer questions or, or send me a line, uh, send me a message. It's twoheadedpod at gmail.com. And this is something I haven't done in a while. Uh, just really going to quickly throw this in there. We do have a partnership with Metallic Dice Games. I haven't mentioned it in a couple of months, but it's still there. Uh, they offer dice, dice-related gaming accessories. Go to metallicdicegames.com. If you buy anything, enter the code TWOHEADS at checkout to get 10% off and uh there's some cool stuff that uh my partner amber has designed for them that's on sale there so check it out and that'll do it for us we'll be back next week with some more noir as we dive back into the shadows and uh yeah we'll see you next week on another incredible two-headed podcast